A very good morning to you on this, the 30th of April. Yes, it is spring, and uh, it will be summer soon. Um, it is good to come together and to praise the Lord. This morning, our preacher is our pastor in training, Mark, and he'll be continuing our series in Exodus. And this morning, his sermon is entitled, uh, Doubt Yourself, But Trust God. And uh, we'll see from the reading in Exodus 4 that, uh, that yeah, Moses really did um, not just question, but, uh, but really tested the patience of God. And yet God prevailed with him and did wondrous things through him. Okay, if you've got your Bibles, we're in Exodus, Exodus chapter 4, and reading from verses 1 through to 17. Exodus chapter 4, verses 1 through to 17. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of the fathers, their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, Put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O oh my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is it not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand the staff with which you shall do the signs. Amen. Thank you, Nigel. And good morning, everybody, again. It's, um, it's a wonderful privilege uh, and a massive, a massive privilege to, to be able to stand here and to open God's Word to you. Uh, and like Nigel intimated in his prayer, it's, it's not because of any strength in me. <laughs> um, and I'm glad to say that I'm able to stand in weakness 
to, to declare it, God's strength. And that's something of what our passage does for us this morning in Exodus 4. Um, yesterday, we, um, we took the opportunity, my, my wife, Lisa, and the two boys, and we took a trip up Sculty uh, when, the, when the weather was dry. Um, and, and hopefully Lisa won't mind me saying, but she does struggle with vertigo, fear of heights. And when we got to the tower, she did not want to go up. She did not want to. And, and Lisa struggles with vertigo on solid bridges, things that are fairly immovable. <clears throat> but fear does a funny thing to us. It, it causes us to lose the ability to calculate what is weak and what is strong and what is, what, is, what is going to hold our weight and what isn't. And so when you're standing on a, on a solid steel staircase bolted to what seems to be an immovable stone structure, it looks like it's made of paper and it's going to fall over. But it's not the case. But fear does that to us. It, it causes our, 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 our senses to... to to lose their sense, uh, and it can paralyze us if we give in to fear. And if we give in to fear, we miss out. Lisa was dragged to the top of that tower, and she got to see the view, uh, and we enjoyed it for the most part. Um, but if we, if we give in to fear, we, we, we often miss out. And there are some fears that are, that are actually particular to Christians. Christians are, are called to be a people who speak. We're called to be a people who, who tell our, our friends and our neighbors and strangers even about, about Jesus and about the gospel. And for so many of us, me included, that causes us to fear. We fear what people will think about us. We fear if we lose the ability to speak, if we will look stupid. Um, and sometimes our fear can paralyze us and we can miss out on the wonderful opportunity of being included in God's mission. And if, if that is you, well, there's good news because you're in very good company here this morning. And in Exodus 4, we have a really wonderfully encouraging example of how God deals with Moses, this man who is afraid to speak for God. Um, a couple of weeks ago, Duncan shared a really helpful summary of the life of Moses when we were looking in Exodus chapter 3. And he, he said that... Um, and I don't know what the original reference is for this, and Duncan doesn't either, but Moses' life can be broken into three 40-year chunks. The first 40 years he spent in Egypt being educated as an Egyptian after he was rescued as a baby. And he, he spent those 40 years in Egypt learning that he was really something, and he believed it. Uh, to the point that he, he tried to, to rescue the people of Israel by his own strength, killing an Egyptian slave master, but then he had to run for fear of his life. His strength wasn't enough to get the people to follow him. It wasn't enough to get the people rescued. Um, so he would spend the next 40-year chunk of his life in the desert in Midian, where he would learn that he is nothing. All of his Egyptian education and status and wealth counted for nothing. And then the final 40-year period, he would lead God's people learning that, that God is everything. It's at the, the end of the second 40-year le lesson that God suddenly appeared to Moses in the burning bush. And he appears to a Moses who, who at this point knows that he is nothing. And crucially, though, he has not yet learned that God is everything. 
This lesson is only just about to begin at the burning bush. And the record of this encounter starts at the start of chapter 3, which we looked at some weeks ago. And it's an awesome and it's a terrifying encounter. Moses stands on holy ground in the presence of a holy, awesome God. And he is afraid even to look upon him. God tells Moses that he has heard the cries of the people enslaved in Egypt, and he's going to set them free, and he is sending Moses to go and do it. Moses is filled with fear. He's filled with a right sense of fear in some ways of his own unworthiness for this task, when back in chapter 3, verse 11, he says, who am I that you should send me? And God responds by pointing to the fact that, that God himself sends Moses, and God will go with Moses. And then Moses asks, who are you? Who should I say you are? What is your name if they ask me what your name is? And God responds by revealing his personal name, his personal name that reveals his eternal nature, his unchanging character, and his his self-sufficient power when he says, I am who I am. And again, God tells Moses to go and to tell the people that he has appeared to him and has sent him to them. So Moses is given this great commission. He has seen God at the burning bush. He is in conversation with him even. But Moses hesitates, as we see in chapter 4. The problem is is that Moses is filled with self-doubt, and he does not yet trust God as he ought. He knows he's nothing, but he hasn't yet learned that God is everything. So let's look at the, the three objections that that come up in chapter 4 that Moses raises. Objection number one, they won't believe me. You see that in verse 1, they won't believe me. I can't change their minds. Objection number two is in verse 10, where he says, I don't speak good. And then objection number three, I'm scared. Send someone else in verse 13. These objections they become progressively more desperate and less valid. So, objection number one in verse one, they won't believe me. On the face of it, it's it's a reasonable enough thing for Moses to say that they won't believe me. I can't make this lot follow me. I don't have the power to bring them with me or to change this people's mind. Moses had firsthand experience of this. Uh, Forty years ago, he was rejected by them. He was their self-appointed leader, and he had to run away in fear for his life. Moses, at the peak of his powers, as he saw it, was unable to influence this people and lead them into freedom. And now he is a shadow of that man. He knows he is nothing. The job is too big, and he is too small. And on top of that, how would he convince this people that God has really appeared to him? It's a bold claim, and surely they would want some sort of evidence. So Moses says, they won't believe me. And it's a fair thing for Moses to say, except, of course, if you look back to chapter 3, verse 18, God told him the people would listen to his voice. So Moses is here, in effect, saying to God, I don't believe you. Moses is so blinded by his own nothingness, he cannot see that God is everything in his plan. He falls into the error of thinking that his inability to change people is a hindrance to God 
who wields all the power to change. Moses doubts himself, and he doesn't yet trust God fully. It's astonishing then, I think, isn't it, that God does not rebuke Moses here. God is patient. God is gentle, and he graciously gives Moses signs. Miraculous signs are given to Moses to perform so that the people would believe that God had indeed appeared to him, and so they would believe his words. But before these signs were assigned to the people Moses was to speak to, they were assigned for Moses himself, a sign that God's power is with him. These signs are designed to get Moses' eyes off of his own inability and onto God's awesome power at work through him. So there's these three signs that God gives. The first two are, are signs that, that Moses performs himself at the bush and will use again later in front of God's people and in front of Pharaoh. And the third is a sign that, that isn't performed here at the bush, but is one that will be performed if the first two are ignored. We're not actually told anything explicitly in Scripture about why these specific signs are given to Moses. I, I guess God could have given Moses the ability to make a tree grow or the sun stop or, or anything, actually. But I'm sure God gave these specific signs to show His power in specific ways. So, sign number one we see Moses, he throws a staff or a stick onto the ground, and it becomes a snake, a terrifying snake that Moses is naturally afraid of and runs from. But God tells him to pick it up. And here Moses exercises trust in God, and he picks up the snake. He grabs it by the tail as instructed, which apparently is the worst place you would grab a snake from, because it'll just whip around and bite you. But Moses listens to God's voice, he picks up the snake, and it becomes a harmless stick. Now, the snake throughout the Bible, it represents the enemy of God, the devil. It was the snake in the garden that tempted Eve to sin, and the snake would become this universal symbol of evil. Here, in this sign, I think God clearly demonstrates that He has power over evil and power over every enemy of God. It is a sign of God's ability to change that which is deadly into something that is harmless and lifeless. This would be a great encouragement to Moses going to Pharaoh, the great enemy of God's people, knowing that God has the power over all of his enemies. Next, we have the second sign where God gives Moses the ability to, to change his hand from, from diseased and leprous to being full of health. He put his hand inside of his cloak, and it becomes white like snow with this skin disease. And then he puts his hand in his cloak again, and it is fully restored, back to perfect health. Now again, skin diseases like leprosy were not only a terrible physical ailment then, but they marked somebody as unfit or unclean and unable to be a part of God's people. You were, you were untouchable, and leprosy was uncurable. And the sign that this sign, I think, shows God's power 
to change people from, from unclean to clean, from excluded to included. It shows his power to restore someone who was cut off from God's people to being a full member of God's community. Both these first two signs show God's transformative and restorative power. They are signs that speak of God's grace. They are signs that show how God wields power to overcome his enemies and to restore his people. But as we see in the story, God knows that that even these two signs may not be heeded. They can be ignored by the people that Moses will go to. So he gives a third sign. And this third sign is not a sign of grace, but rather a sign of judgment. Moses is told that if the people will not listen, he's to take some water from the Nile, pour it on the ground, and it will turn into blood. And water turning into blood is a, is a clear picture of judgment. We see a clearer picture of this in Revelation 16, where we see water turned to blood in the great judgment scene that is depicted there. Here in Exodus, this water from the Nile turned into blood is a a small foreshadowing of that judgment. And it's a foretaste of actually the, the plagues that will be poured out on Egypt as a result of Pharaoh's unbelief. So this third sign is an act Uh, to act as a warning so that the people Moses goes to would listen and believe. You know, in these, these three signs, these signs that God gives, I think we have something of the shape of the gospel. God is a God who offers us grace. He is the God who has the power over evil and death. And these are signs that point us directly to the cross, that piece of wood where the devil the deadly enemy of God's people was rendered harmless to them and to us, where his power was destroyed. It's also at the cross where Jesus takes our death. He removes it from us. He takes in his own body our sickness and disease and sin. He bears in his body the sins of his people and he puts it to death. And by his death and by his resurrection, he restores us to life and to health and to relationship with God. This is the grace of God and the power of God that is on offer for us who believe in Jesus as Savior. But as well as this wonderful offer of grace that we might believe in Him, God also, He warns us of His judgments. There is a judgment that awaits those who refuse God's grace in Christ Jesus. There is a death that awaits us. God warns us very clearly in his word so that we might escape it, that we might turn to him, believe, and live. The multiple signs of God's grace and his judgment are there for us because God is a patient God. And we are a stubborn people, and we're slow to believe. There's a a foreshadowing of this gospel power of God and Uh, and of God in judgment and grace in our passage this morning. But even having seen the power of God, Moses still persists in his objections. Increasingly, Moses' objection is not a, a disbelief in God's power, but an increasing fear that he is not the man for the job. He has seen God's great power, but he is still frozen with fear because of his own inability. 
And, and this then is given voice in verse 10, where Moses brings his next objection to God. It's an objection that he's just not able to speak. He, he doesn't speak well. In this objection, we learn something more of, of Moses' fear. We also learn more of the mission of God. You see, God's mission, it requires more than miraculous signs. It is a word-based mission, a mission with a message. Moses knows this. He knows that God intends to send him on a mission to speak, and this is still the way that God works. But Moses is afraid, and he objects to God's plan to send him by saying, I just don't speak good. And he isn't any good at public speaking. He claims to be slow of speech and tongue. Perhaps he has some sort of a speech impediment. We're, we're not really sure. But he's just still so filled with self-doubt that he's frozen in fear. He knows that he is nothing, but he still doesn't know that God is everything. And it's possible, likely in fact, that Moses is overstating his inability to speak well. And I guess if, if we were to counsel Moses, as if we hadn't already given up on him by this stage, but if we were to counsel Moses, we might try to build up his self-confidence and to, to point to all of his good attributes and his abilities and look at his wonderful Egyptian education and the, the language that he can speak. We might seek to bolster his, his self-confidence by telling him to believe in himself. That's what we're told every day, isn't it? But this is not what God does. Because for God, Moses' weakness isn't a problem. His inability to speak does not pose any sort of hindrance whatsoever. God is perfectly happy for Moses to doubt his own ability. In fact, this is the first qualification for anyone who wants to be truly used of God. A sense of our own unworthiness and weakness to do what pleases God by our own ability. God knows that to doubt ourselves is actually a good thing, but only if it's coupled with a trust in Him. God wants you to doubt yourself and trust Him. He aims at this in Moses when He reminds Moses who it was that made His mouth. It's the Lord. The Lord made man's mouth and makes him able to speak and to hear and to see. If, if any of us have any kind of ability, it's because God has given it to us. And if God wants us to do anything for him, he will give us what we need to do it. God says, if I want you to speak, I'll be able to make you able. I will make you speak. And he says, I will be with your mouth and I will teach you what to say. God, I think, demonstrates staggering patience with Moses. He doesn't cast him aside. He builds him up, not in self-confidence, but in God-confidence, because this is what Moses needs, and it's what we need, not more self-confidence, but more confidence in God. It's quite incredible to think that right now, Moses is still standing at the burning bush and seeing the things that God has shown him, turning a stick into a snake and back into a stick again, making a leprous hand healthy again. Moses still sees the plan of God is doomed to failure because of his own inadequacies. Moses, his thinking is still dominated with thoughts of his own weakness and nothingness. He's gripped with fear 
God again tells him that while Moses may be nothing, he is everything. Sure, doubt yourself, but trust God. Now, in Matthew 28, Jesus, he tells his disciples that they are to go into the world and tell people who he is, to go and make disciples. And they are to do it under his authority, knowing that he himself will be with them. You know, we can clearly see the parallels to, to our chapter here in Exodus 4. This is something that applies not just to Moses and not even just to the disciples in Jesus' time, but to all of us who call ourselves Christians. Many of us, however, myself included, shrink back from serving God and speaking to others about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we often use the excuse that we're just not that gifted at this sort of thing. We're not any good at evangelism. We're not good at speaking, but, but God has called us to be a speaking people. And so we need to remember who has made our mouths. Christ, who calls us to speak for him, will equip us to speak for him. And just as God tells Moses, he will do for him here. But sadly, we can, we can get stuck for a long time in believing that our own weakness renders God's plan unworkable. And we can be resistant to all evidence of God's power and reminders about the truth of his sovereignty. And we're too often frozen in self-doubt instead of moving in obedient trust to God. And, and this is where we see Moses in, in his third objection in verse 13. It boils down to this, that he's afraid. He's afraid to go. And he says, God, please send somebody else. You know, Moses' first two objections, they have some substance to them, but when we see them fully addressed by God, we see actually what underpins all of them is this fear, this fear that Moses just, he doesn't want to go. And it's not that he doesn't want God to do the things that God said he would do. It's not that Moses doesn't want God to rescue his people. He does. Moses just doesn't want to be part of it. He'd rather God send someone else. And what an absolute tragedy it would have been for Moses if God had relented at this point and left Moses behind in Midian. And what a tragedy it would be for us if God did that to us. But instead, we see that God, in remarkable patience, persists with Moses. Although God's anger is kindled against Moses, God does not blow Moses away, but he brings him near, and God deals very gently with him. God accommodates Moses' weakness, and, and he seeks to ease his fears. He tells Moses he will send his brother Aaron to come and help. Aaron can speak well, and he can speak on Moses' behalf. God doesn't say he will send Aaron instead of Moses, though, which he could have done. He, he says he will send Aaron to assist Moses. Aaron will become Moses' mouthpiece, just as Moses was to be God's. And mercifully, God doesn't withdraw his promise to be with Moses and with his mouth and to teach him what to say. In fact, he reiterates and he, he extends this promise to Aaron as well. This is an incredible honor that God gives to Moses, this reluctant rescuer. In it, we see a God who is powerful, yet patient. He's mighty, but gentle. 
He persists with reluctant people when we would give up. He uses the weakness of Moses to magnify his own strength, and he sends Moses just the help he needs to step out in service to God. And God not only puts up with Moses' objection, he responds by showing his power and giving him these tangible reminders of his power. These, the staff in his own hand and his brother by his side. Moses, he learns that although he is nothing, that God is everything. This is the journey that he is on. And, and this unrelenting persistence of God with the reluctant Moses is the first step. We see how Moses speaks, and indeed he sings of God when he had learned more fully that God is everything. In Exodus 15, after God had led the people out of Egypt, Moses sings of God's strength. He says, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. In verse 2 of Exodus 15, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. And in verse 11, we see he sings, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And Moses recognizes that although God had sent him to lead the people out of slavery, it was indeed God that was doing the leading. In verse 13, it says of, verse, of chapter 15, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. When we fear speaking to people about Jesus because the job is too big and we are too small, we need to remember that God is the one who has the power to change people. He has the power to make us even us, able to speak. He sends us and he goes with us. He does not use us because he needs us, but to bless us. It is our great privilege, as it was Moses, to be used by God in his weakness and to witness firsthand the power of God to save. When we see how God responds to the reluctance of Moses, to the stubborn objections that he brings, it ought to be a great encouragement for stubborn, reluctant people like you and me, as well as, as drawing parallels between our own story and that of Moses. We can often see parallels between the life of Moses and that of Jesus. We often see similarities, but in this passage, we can see, as well as similarities, some major contrasts. Both Moses and Jesus were sent by God to rescue His people. But where we see Moses hesitate and give objections to God's plan to use him to save his people, praise God, we see that Jesus does not do that. Jesus delights to do the will of his Father. And when he is sent, he goes unhesitatingly, without question. His will is one with his Father's. Where Moses sees his weakness as a hindrance to the rescue plan of God, we see Jesus knows that he must become weak to fulfill the plan of salvation. He willingly humbled himself. Jesus, mighty God, became a weak man so that he might go to the cross to save his people. 
and where we see Moses timid and stepping back, back from God's plan, we see Jesus boldly stepping forward, going to the cross without objection, silently like a lamb to the slaughter, to offer his life as a ransom for many. What a wonderful thing it is that here we see the great contrast between Moses and the infinitely greater rescuer, Jesus. And the infinitely greater rescue that Jesus performed. Moses led people out of slavery to Pharaoh. Jesus leads his people out of slavery to sin, to the evil that is in our own hearts. And when we look to this Jesus, we see that our weakness is no hindrance to his salvation plan. Recognition of our weakness is a requirement. It is right that we doubt ourselves, but we must not only have self-doubt, we must also look to Christ and see His strength, His power, and His grace towards us and trust in Him. Doubt yourself. Trust God, because although we may be nothing, He is everything. Thank you. Let's say the words of the grace to to one another as we close now. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore.